Death certificates aren't something the average person thinks about on a day-to-day basis. It's not until a child, a spouse, a sibling, or another loved one passes away that the living seek closure for the dead, often in the form of a piece of paper. A doctor scrawls or types the patient's name, personal information, and cause of death. It should be a simple transaction. But when it comes to writing down why someone died, things can get complicated, especially if an antibiotic-resistant infection was involved. In many instances, these infections are alluded to vaguely, if at all, on the final death certificate. The ravages of MRSA on a premature baby can be summed up as suspice. On paper, an organ recipient with multiple drug-resistant infections merely died from cardiac arrhythmia. Months of infection-related suffering that resulted in the death of a young mother are called cardiopulmonary arrest due to complications from a MRSA infection. Fifteen years after the U.S. government declared the rise of antibiotic-resistant infections to be a critical health threat, a team of journalists from Reuters found that there's still no reliable way of tracking deaths tied to these quote-unquote superbugs. Well, it's one of the most fundamental functions of the public health system, to count deaths, to keep track of who's dying, you know, from what cause, where, what numbers. Um, and it's important for identifying and responding to, to you know, deadly threats. Yeah, we're not doing that. Coming up, Kara Tabor has the story of how the Reuters team of Deborah Nelson, whose voice you just heard, Ryan McNeil, and Yasmin Abutaleb worked for nearly a year and a half to try and answer a seemingly simple question. How many people are actually dying from antibiotic-resistant superbugs? I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. It all started with Reuters editor John Blanton. He's a journalist who, a little over a decade ago, decided to take a break from working at the Wall Street Journal to become an intensive care unit nurse. After a few years, he returned to the newsroom with a lot of questions. He was shocked at the prevalence of antibiotic-resistant infections. And I'm really struck by the carelessness of medical staff in dealing with it. So when he returned to journalism, it was, um, he thought this is really something the public needs to know about. Antibiotic-resistant infections, or superbugs, have gained a lot of attention in recent years. Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, is most common. But infections C. difficile and CRE are also high up on the danger list. Lurking in contaminated water or medical equipment Pseudomonas aeruginosa can defeat multiple classes of drugs, making it one of the hardest infections to treat. Yasmin Abutalib, the team's science and health expert, explains. The infections are, are often really brutal and they take place over the course of months and they're really sucking the life out of someone and debilitating them. And the person, in a lot of cases, became a shell of who they were. And there's one defining characteristic of superbugs that make them particularly unique. The difference with antibiotic-resistant bacteria compared to other 
major public health threats is that it's largely a problem that's been created by the healthcare industry through overuse of antibiotics, through contaminated equipment, or, or even healthcare workers who are rushing from room to room and, and don't properly wash their hands in between patients. So the team set out trying to find information on superbug deaths at the state level, where any other reporter may initially think to go. They surveyed all 50 states about the different laws and regulations governing how they report and track superbug deaths. Here's Ryan McNeil. What we found was sort of a patchwork of state requirements uh, on reporting the infection alone, let alone even figuring out whether uh, the patient died. And I believe uh, one, of the, one of the main numbers of our story is that only 24 states in the District of Columbia um, count even one, uh, count deaths from even one of sort of the seven leading infections that we asked about, um, which was pretty su- surprising. And then we also asked them, um, okay, so if you do count deaths 2003 to t- 2014, how many can you account for? And it was about in the 3,000s. Unlike the response to other major health threats in recent decades, like AIDS, tuberculosis, or hepatitis C, state and federal efforts to track superbug deaths have been less than comprehensive. In fact, two of the most populated states in the country, Texas and California, don't count any deaths due to antibiotic-resistant infections. With AIDS, you have to record anytime someone dies with AIDS, even if it's not the primary cause or even a contributing cause. The person could have died in a car accident, but if they had AIDS, you would have to record that. Another issue lies with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's estimates. The CDC's calculations put the national death toll for most superbugs at 23,000 per year, with an additional 15,000 dying from C. difficile. That comes out to about 38,000 deaths a year. The team reached out to the CDC to get some insight into how the center actually came up with those numbers. Ryan and Deborah met with the scientists and officials who had made the estimates, spending hours understanding their methods. Ryan then went into a dark room somewhere <laughs> and worked through the calculations and um, emerged with some pretty surprising analysis about just how big the confidence intervals were. Uh, they're so large that really the numbers are almost meaningless in terms of usefulness for public health purposes. That means the country's leading public health organization was trying to gauge a national threat with numbers that were dangerously imprecise. We couldn't uh, recalculate, you know, at least one big infection because of the lack of information from the studies and the authors couldn't provide it. But that all being said, even even at a conservative estimate, you know, it could be anywhere, if you accept their methodology, anywhere from about 25,000 to 54,000, which is quite a gap. Meanwhile, the reporters were still looking to learn about oversight at the state level, attempting to pair laws and regulations with the few deaths that were being tracked. Once again, they were faced with numbers that just didn't seem right. For the years 2003 to 2014, states were offering statistics that cumulatively counted deaths in the 3,000s. Reuters had hit roadblocks at the federal and state level, But there was a third resource for counting superbug fatalities that hadn't been examined yet. Death certificates. 
the first thing we found after doing surveying all the states was that most states um, that information is not public. It used to be. A lot of it has uh, is covered now by privacy laws. So the intention was, you know, that we would go and and get a number of states and do our own text analysis, and that quickly proved impossible because states have shut the doors on access to this very, very important data and, um, you know, that can be used for a number of different things. Back to the CDC they went, the Center's Office of Vital Statistics, to be exact. This time was to figure out if any answers could be gathered from the text of now-guarded death certificates. It turns out there's no official mortality codes to indicate deaths from infections like MRSA or CRE or any of the other top superbug killers at all. So the you know, Department of Vital Statistics comes up with those numbers based on an alphanumeric code um, that comes out of an international classification code book. You know, every, all the countries have agreed to. Um, and it was that... That code was developed in the early 1990s before antibiotic-resistant infections were identified as a leading public health danger. So CDC simply didn't count them. So what are doctors, nurses, clinicians, and anyone else who may be responsible for filling out a death certificate actually writing? In many cases, not antibiotic-resistant infection. Attribution is often given to another cause. If you look at enough death certificates, you can lump some of the entries into general categories. There are unclear causes of death, for example, you know, some some records might only say MRSA. Some might see, say uh, MET resistance instead of methicillin resistance. The imprecise. Sepsis can be caused by an antibiotic-resistant infection, but it can be caused by any type of infection. Pneumonia can be antibiotic-resistant, caused by an antibiotic-resistant pathogen, but it also might not be. Those lacking pretty much all the key details. We saw cardiac arrest. You know, it shouldn't even be on a death certificate. Everybody dies of, or we'll see a respiratory arrest. That was another right. uh, common one. And finally, the straight up confusing. Complications due to a parachuting accident. <laughs> yeah, compl- complications. That was another one. That was another euphemism for an infection that came up frequently. Complications from. Um, and then it's attached to whatever brought the person into the hospital initially. This lack of clarity leads to a lot of problems, including a lack of closure for grieving family members like Shala Bowser. Bowser just wanted to see the real cause of death for her days-old baby, Josiah Cooper Pope. Josiah was born 15 weeks premature in Virginia. Soon after his birth, he was transferred to the neonatal intensive care unit at Chippenham Hospital in Richmond. 
and he was doing fine for about the first week and a half, and then suddenly took a turn for the worse. Um, and his mom was called in, told to prepare uh, for his death. She held him in her arms, and um, it was the first and last time she held him, and he died. They told her that um, he had contracted an infection. And what wasn't recorded on the death certificate was that he had died, that he had died of MRSA. Another thing Josiah's mother didn't know, three other babies in the NICU had contracted MRSA before her son. The hospital was expected to report the outbreak to state health authorities after the third baby was infected, which was four days before Josiah fell ill. If you're not tracking these infections in real time, if you're not requiring hospitals or labs to report when this is happening, there's no way for agencies and other public health officials to know when to go in and help a hospital with an outbreak or with a high number of infections. Twelve babies contracted MRSA before Chippenham officials contacted the state. And only then did they reach out. By mail. Health authorities found staff at the hospital weren't trained in how to handle MRSA infections. Cleaning wasn't being done properly, and rocking chairs that sat next to bassinets of infected babies were allowed to be moved to areas with healthy babies. And you just have to wonder if the health department had been called in immediately, how many babies could Josiah's infection have been prevented? Descriptions or outright exclusion of a superbug on a death certificate can happen for a variety of reasons. It looks bad for hospitals when people die of antibiotic-resistant infections. There's, you know, worry about public perception. There's worry about li- liability. Sometimes the clinicians who fill them out don't want to wait for the lab tests to come back. But the bottom line is that there isn't an emphasis from the federal government on down on the importance of recording these diseases. That's one of the really difficult things about having stricter reporting requirements of these infections is the few times that lawmakers will maybe bring up a bill to implement better reporting, there's often pushback from the medical community. And hospitals ultimately self-report, so it's up to them to report this stuff accurately. To understand what was really going on, The Reuters team had to find a way to work around the inconsistent reporting and secret death certificates. So they devised a set of terms that the CDC agreed to use in a special death certificate text analysis. Using these keywords, the vital statistics experts could look for certain phrases or words within particular contexts, enhancing their ability to find relevant certificates. Deciding on which keywords to use also took the help of outside medical experts. We sort of took our own swipe at it and then we we worked with experts to sort of come up with a sort of a conversion method to take those text results that were kind of all over the place and into something we could, you know, really sort of sink our teeth into. It was quite a process uh, to get it right. And what we found is that about 180,000 deaths between 20, 2003 and 2014 were linked to or caused by an antibiotic-resistant infection. 180,000 deaths. 
This after the team found state-level estimates that were around 3,300, and the CDC itself estimated national deaths around 38,000. The numbers were clearly flawed, but one thing had become strikingly clear. No one really knows the true impact of superbugs. Not the states, and not the federal government. A death certificate isn't just a marker of a disease, a medical condition, or an infection. Behind everyone, there's a person. Someone who left behind family, friends, or loved ones. That piece of paper can hold tremendous meaning. In most circumstances, it's the final document in a person's life. And you could make a strong argument that they deserve to have their death accurately recorded. And as we've shown in our reporting, that's not happening. For this reason, many families were willing to talk with Reuters. To find them, the team revisited some of the death certificate search terms they had given to the CDC for analysis and used them to search through court records and local news stories. Patient safety advocates were also a connection between the reporters and a patient's loved ones. But it's hard because you're asking them to go through this very difficult time. And for some of the families, they had only recently, their loved one might have died a couple of years ago, but they were only recently piecing together everything that happened to them in the hospital. And a lot of them said that they didn't get clear descriptions of what was happening with the infection. And so in talking, or maybe they would have done it before we talked, they were starting to piece together what happened and just how bad the infection was. Talking about what their spouses, children, or siblings endured gave families an opportunity to vent, to express the injustice that they felt when healthcare providers had mislabeled or obscured the causes of their loved ones' deaths. You know, all of us investigative reporters regularly have to do to work with people who have been through trauma. But I was surprised at how much, how much that the death certificate meant to them. As the reporters contacted families willing to be featured in the story, they asked for evidence. They knew that revisiting medical documents might be a painful process for relatives. So the team volunteered to sift through the sometimes massive troves of records themselves. For every person we spoke with, we um, obtained medical records or an autopsy or, you know, some sort of record that would have confirmed the role of the infection in the death and in the patient's care. So... It had to have been thousands of pages of medical records. Yes, thousands. I still, in fact, have three legal boxes sitting in my office. Wow. And for about how many people were all those records for? Those three, bo- those three boxes sitting there now, those were, that's one case. Wow. Josiah's mother, Shala Bowser, was asked for medical records and the death certificate as well. And so she went to pick it up from the county you know, vital statistics, or the state vital statistics office. And she called me from the parking lot sobbing because she couldn't believe it. It it wasn't, Mirtha was not on the death certificate. I mean, she had seen his body swell up to twice the size that it, that it was, you know, this little tiny couple pound baby swelled, swelled up so much that his skin split. And there was no mention of that, that he died of sepsis just kind of a generic infection, and of prematurity. Deborah tracked down the doctor who had completed Josiah's death certificate and gave him a call. And I asked him, 
you know, why didn't you write down MRSA? And he said that he didn't think it mattered. Legally, it didn't. Only Illinois and Washington state require MRSA to be listed as a contributor in a death. But in every other way, it does matter. It matters so that officials and governments can see where there are problems and where resources need to be allocated. It matters so that there can be peace for the families of the deceased. Deborah said relatives they talked to. They were just absolutely, um, I don't know what's the right word for it. They were anguished. They were anguished over the antibiotic-resistant infection not being recorded on the death certificate. Even years later, it really haunted them. I mean, they had seen their loved one die of an infection, and that's, it's, a, it's a really violent way to die. Uh, it just takes over your whole body. And, um, and then to not to see it missing from the death certificate, and so it was, it was, I think we talked about it, it was as if the killer had gotten away, as if their loved one had been shot and the person who shot them had gotten away. During the reporting process, the team tried to get in contact with the people responsible for filling out those death certificates. We got a lot of no comments, which was frustrating because you want to hear from the hospitals or the institutions or the doctors themselves why they didn't feel it was necessary or important to record the infection on the death certificate. It's probably not surprising to hear that any push to strengthen reporting requirements is met with some resistance from the healthcare industry. We've heard that from some legislators. Hospital workers already have so many things to do. You know, they've they're they're shuffling between lots and lots of patients and often more patients than they can handle and they've got a lot of paperwork and instituting re- reporting requirements would just be another thing you're making them do. And thanks to this daily frenzy Many of these pathogens have found a permanent home in hospitals and clinics. I spoke with one researcher in the course of reporting who said MRSA is present in pretty much every hospital now. Um, Because I was asking him about a study that showed MRSA in in two particular hospitals, and he was was saying, you know, MRSA is present in pretty much every healthcare institution. So this is something that's widely known among physicians, but I think would be more surprising to the public that these bugs just live in hospitals now. And the more exposure you have to a hospital and the sicker you are, the more likely you are to get one of them. Um, That's just sort of a reality of being in the healthcare system now. As long as the government lacks accurate numbers for superbug infections, hospitals will likely lack the resources needed to fight these deadly microscopic enemies. You know, one of the things that we pointed out is is that for the current year, um, Congress allocated about $7.7 $7.7 billion to fight AIDS, and included in that is about $789 million to CDC. And then if you compare that to what antibiotic-resistant infections are getting, it's about a billion dollars government-wide, including um, $160 million in new money. 
one of the things to remember is none of the new money will help improve counting of deaths. None of that will help us understand who is dying and where. The team published their first story in September, but still has a lot more in the works. So far, they've gotten the attention of average readers and members of the medical community, including those they worked with to find answers. The CDC also responded. They went on the offensive. (laughs) They put out a press release and a recommended tweet saying the Obama administration has done more than any, you know, president in history on antibiotic-resistant infections. But they haven't taken issue with um, any of our facts. The point they keep making is we're doing, you know, we're working on this. It's, an, it's a high priority. I guess their, their, their only complaint really is that our focus isn't on the great things they're doing. Our focus is on, on the important things they're not doing. You know, we went over the story with them in detail before we published. And in the responses, they said that they were going to start doing a text analysis of death certificates. So if they go forward with that, that'll be the first time that anybody's, anybody's done that, begun to systematically track antibiotic-resistant infections. In addition, legislators have responded with plans of action for ushering in new reporting requirements. California State Senator Jerry Hill recently announced that he plans to introduce legislation to require hospitals to report superbug cases and deaths. That's a huge development for a state that currently does no reporting at all. Trying to answer their editor's straightforward question about superbug deaths has turned out to be anything but simple for the Reuters team. They found meaningless government estimates and were shut out from viewing text documents that could hold the answers. But Deborah, Ryan, and Yasmin are still digging through thousands of records to tell stories that can save lives. Their reporting experience? Well, it's a good reminder that these struggles can sometimes become a story all their own. You know, this is also one of those, sort of one of those stories where sometimes when, I mean, the fact that you can't find an answer is the story in and of itself, right? The fact that you can't answer it the conventional ways that you would think that you should, right? I mean, I mean, sometimes that's the story itself. Yeah, and that did turn out to be the story here. forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head over to irie.org podcast to browse our archives. The next show is a milestone for us, our 50th episode. And to celebrate, we have a really great story lined up. Blake Nelson will be talking with Washington Post reporter Todd Frankel and photographer Michael Chavez about their jaw-dropping investigation that traced the batteries we use to power our cell phones and laptops back to deadly cobalt mines in Congo. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Kara Tabor reported this episode. Blake Nelson draws our episode artwork, and Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal.
diary, diary. radio podcast. podcast. You might want to do that already. Okay. Yeah. Podcast. podcast.